0: The 2019 SCCM guidelines on pain, agitation, delirium, immobility, and sleep note that prolonged use of opioids, benzodiazepines, and non-benzodiazepine sedatives during ICU stays put patients at risk of iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome, or IWS. Although IWS is well-recognized by clinicians, a paucity of data exists on how to manage these patients and this creates a unique challenge. Let's listen in as Dr. Nikita Yagnala provides a roadmap to identify and manage IWS in the adult ICU patient.
1: For the next 45 minutes, I would like everyone to imagine that you're a critical care pharmacist rounding in the medical intensive care unit. You've come back from a weekend and you've seen that your long-term COVID-19 ARDS patient is made a remarkable recovery over the weekend after having been mechanically ventilated paralyzed, and deeply sedated for the past 11 days. As the team is discussing attempting a spontaneous breathing trial in this patient with goals to potentially wean off the vent and hit the floors by the end of the week, you ask yourself the million dollar question, how in the world am I going to get this patient off of all the sedation we've been giving him without making him go into withdrawal? In order to set a plan in place and to ensure that our patient is going to be awake, alert, and ready to hit the floor by the end of the week, we must first understand how we define iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome in critically ill patients. Next, we'll take a look at identifying the risk factors for iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome. Finally, we'll review the current limited evidence for the management of iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome, or IWS, as I will now be referring to it as, in adult ICU patients. To really understand what IWS truly is, it's time to take a step back and revisit what we already know, the concept of our ICU triad of pain, agitation, and delirium. In an effort to alleviate pain and agitation in the ICU setting, oftentimes we are giving our patients opioids and benzodiazepines and dexmedetomidine as sedatives. With prolonged exposure to these agents, our patients inevitably will develop tolerance over time, requiring increasing doses of these agents. When we remove these agents on our patients, the tolerance will manifest as withdrawal. To muddy the picture, withdrawal is oftentimes presenting as agitation and delirium. As one can imagine, it's very difficult to pinpoint IWS in the critical care setting, as it's oftentimes going to be manifesting alongside our triad of pain, agitation, and delirium. That being said, however, there are various key triggers that may precipitate the incidence of withdrawal in our critical care patients. These include abrupt cessation of IV continuous infusion sedatives, rapid dose reductions, and transitioning from IV to enteral agents, especially in the setting of altered gastrointestinal absorption. Now you may be wondering, these are actions that we're doing quite frequently in the ICU. How prevalent really is iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome in our patients? While IWS has been well reported and recognized in the pediatric population for quite some time, it's definitely not as well studied in adult ICU patients. As sedation practices have changed through the years to recommend targeting a lighter sedation for patients, what we've come to recognize is that in select patient populations where we are giving them deeper, more prolonged sedation, we're actually increasing and iatrogenically inducing withdrawal in them as we're removing those agents. The studies listed from 2017 onwards in adult ICU populations are specifically looking at those targeted patients where we're giving prolonged, deeper sedation. The incidences of ICU in those specific patient populations range anywhere from 16 to 64%. I would argue that since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, our sedation practices have also changed when caring for COVID-19 patients as these patients are likely requiring deeper, more prolonged sedation. For that purpose, the incidence and prevalence of IWS has likely increased in the past few months. The downstream clinical consequences of IWS really affect patients throughout all phases of care. There's evidence to support that IWS is actually associated with increased duration of mechanical ventilation, increased length of ICU stay, and also increased hospital length of stay. As patients present with withdrawal symptoms, they're ultimately going to be requiring longer durations of opioid therapy, not only in the ICU setting, but likely as they transfer to the floor and out into the outpatient setting as well. For this reason, patients are affected not only in the ICU, but also on the general floors and also out into the outpatient setting as well. To better understand why IWS occurs and how to best manage it in our patients, it's important to take a look at the pathophysiology of tolerance and withdrawal. Looking into the molecular level, mechanistically speaking, the mechanism behind opioid benzodiazepine and dexmedetomidine withdrawal is largely similar. With chronic agonism into the mu receptors for opioids, the GABA receptors for benzodiazepines, and the alpha-adrenergic 2 receptors for dexmedetomidine, downregulation of the respective receptors will occur through time. Specifically for opioids and benzodiazepines, with chronic use, there's going to be an upregulation of the excitatory receptors and an increase in the glutamate. With this, there's going to be an imbalance in the excitatory effects rather than the sedative effects that we're aiming for in our patients. Clinically, IWS may manifest in a variety of symptoms. While it's very difficult to truly pinpoint what agent is causing each of these symptoms, there are key characteristic symptoms to keep in mind when we're looking at opioid withdrawal and benzodiazepine withdrawal specifically. With opioid withdrawal, Oftentimes, we might be seeing more gastrointestinal effects, such as diarrhea, in addition to mydriasis or pupil dilation, lacrimation, and rhinorrhea. With benzodiazepine withdrawal, we might see more neurological symptoms, such as seizures, confusion, and hallucination. A lot of the adrenergic symptoms, such as fevers, tachycardia, sweating, and nausea and vomiting, will be seen in both opioid and benzodiazepine withdrawal, leading to more of a mixed picture. To add to the clinical conundrum, prolonged dexmedetomidine use has been increasing in the past few years, adding to the incidence of dexmedetomidine withdrawal and the additional nonspecific symptoms that we may see, including tachycardia, high blood pressure, and restlessness, to name a few. Keeping in mind the key clinical presentation of withdrawal symptoms, it's important to keep in mind that IWS is still in its early stages. So we do not yet have a validated assessment tool to truly determine the severity of withdrawal symptoms and pinpoint them in our adult patients, much like we have tools for assessing pain, agitation, and delirium. That being said, the Watt one and SOS tools have been validated in pediatric patients to identify iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome. However, these tools have low sensitivity and specificity to adult patients. This is likely due to the fact that the Watt one and SOS tools have symptoms to identify things like inconsolable crying and startle-to-touch, factors that we might not necessarily see in our adult patient populations. For this reason, a lot of the adult studies that are assessing IWS will take a look at the DSM-5 criteria that's utilized in adults' outpatients to identify benzodiazepine and opioid withdrawal syndrome. The DSM-5 criteria takes into account many of the key clinical symptoms that we had touched on in the prior slide and might be, a validated, might be a valid tool to utilize in the interim while we're still trying to figure out what the best assessment tool is for our adult patients. Now that we have a better understanding of what IWS is, let's go back to our patient case and see how he's doing after rounds. To recap, KH is a 65-year-old man recovering from ARDS due to COVID pneumonia. After requiring 11 days of deep sedation due to ventilator dyssynchrony, he is deemed a candidate for sedation and ventilation wean. He remains deeply sedated with fentanyl running at 150 micrograms per hour, midazolam at 5 milligrams per hour, and dexmedetomidine at 0.9 micrograms per kilogram per hour. As the team instructs our ICU nurse to stop the fentanyl and midazolam drips to attempt a spontaneous breathing trial, you decide to educate the team on the possible withdrawal symptoms to monitor for in our patients. This leads me to the first assessment questions. If everyone can take out their phones or tablets and go to the Poll Everywhere app or respond on the web via pollev.com slash RX or text the answer to MayoRx to 22333. Question being, which one of the following symptoms is specifically characteristic of opioid withdrawal? A. Seizures, B. Mydriasis. C. Tachycardia, or D. Fever. All right, as answers are starting to stream in, so it looks like the majority of um, people vote B. mydriasis or pupil dilation, which is the correct answer. So when we're specifically looking at characteristics specific to opioid withdrawal, mydriasis is unique to opioid withdrawal syndrome. A, seizures, is incorrect because this is typically seen with benzodiazepine withdrawal. Tachycardia and fevers, while they are present in opioid withdrawal syndrome, they're also autonomic symptoms that we might see in patients who are experiencing benzodiazepine withdrawal and even dexmedetomidine withdrawal. For that reason, when we're specifically looking at characteristics specific to opioid withdrawal, b mydriasis would be something to look out for and recognize as contributing from opioids themselves. Now that we have an understanding of how IWS may manifest in our patient, let's dive and take a step back to look at what risk factors our patient may have for the incidence of IWS. Globally, drug characteristics, Dosing, duration, and patient characteristics are four of the main factors to keep in mind when we're assessing the risk of withdrawal. Starting with drug characteristics. Typically, medications like synthetic opioids will be more potent at the mu receptor, causing a greater downregulation of the mu receptor and causing increased development of tolerance. Synthetic opioids like fentanyl, therefore, would have a higher risk for withdrawal compared to more natural opioids like morphine or hydromorphone. Agents that have NMDA antagonistic activity such as methadone or ketamine typically exhibit a lower risk of withdrawal in comparison to pure opioid agonists like fentanyl. This is because that NMDA antagonism is going to be able to counteract that downstream tolerance that's developed with pure opioid agonists and ideally result in lower risks of the withdrawal. Finally, Agents that have a shorter half-life, like fentanyl and midazlam will have higher risks for withdrawal compared to agents that have longer half-lives, like phenobarbital or methadone, likely because a longer half-life will allow the drug to self- and auto-taper. More important, arguably, than the medication itself is the cumulative dose in which patients are receiving these medications. Time and time again, adult and pediatric studies have continued to show that patients who are experiencing IWS are typically receiving much larger cumulative and peak daily doses compared to patients who have not been experiencing IWS. Even when looking at dexmedetomidine withdrawal, studies have shown that same conclusions – Patients who are receiving cumulative and peak daily doses of higher dexmedetomidine rates are at increased risks for withdrawal compared to patients who are receiving lower drip rates. In this study specifically, the authors went as far as to conclude that patients who are receiving dexmedetomidine at peak rates of 0.8 micrograms per kilogram per hour are at higher risks of having withdrawal syndromes upon discontinuation of the agent. Just as important as the dose of the agent will be the duration at which the patient is on the sedative agent. Reported durations for sedation among patients with IWS is variable among the literature, especially looking at the Camerano and colleagues study from 1998 serving as the outlier in trauma patients. For the most part, patients in each of these studies have been exposed to sedation for at least 5 to 7 days prior to discontinuation of the agent and the prevalence and manifestation of their withdrawal syndromes. With the literature that we know, I would say that a sedation duration of greater than five to seven days is when we should start thinking about the risks of withdrawal in our ICU patients. To round out the risk factors for withdrawal, there are a few associations with different patient characteristics that may contribute to increased withdrawal syndromes. These include chronic utilization of alcohol, opioids, or benzodiazepines, inpatient diagnosis with ARDS, sepsis, or trauma, and factors such as young age, all in different studies which have shown to be associated with increased risk for withdrawal. To summarize the risk factors for IWS, short-acting synthetic opioids given at large, cumulative, and peak doses at a duration of greater than five to seven days in select patient populations all show to have the greatest risk for withdrawal syndrome in our patients. Knowing now what we know about risk factors for the incidence of iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome, let's check back to our patient. To recap, KH is a 65-year-old man recovering from ARDS due to COVID pneumonia. He has been deeply sedated for 11 days with the fentanyl at 150 micrograms per hour, midazolam at five milligrams per hour, and dexmedetomidine at 0.9 micrograms per kilogram per hour. The team has instructed our ICU nurse to stop that fentanyl and midazolam drip to attempt a spontaneous breathing trial. As the sedation is weaned off in the next hour, he becomes restless, hypertensive, tachycardic, and febrile. He fails his spontaneous breathing trial and is placed back on 50% of his fentanyl and midazolam drips. This leads me to our next question. Which one of the following is correct regarding KH's risk for iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome? A, fentanyl will put him at a lower risk for withdrawal compared to other sedative agents. B, older age puts him at a higher risk for withdrawal. C, duration of deep sedation for 11 days puts him at a higher risk. And D, that dexmedetomidine rate less than 1 microgram per kilogram per hour puts him at a lower risk. All right, so across the board it looks like C is what everyone is thinking and C is correct. So certainly KH has been receiving deep sedation for 11 days which is much longer than the five to seven day threshold that we decided would be a decent risk factor to determine risk for withdrawal syndrome a Is incorrect because fentanyl being a potent synthetic opioid and a short-acting agent puts him at a higher risk B is incorrect because a younger age has been associated with higher risks for withdrawal And D would be incorrect because in our studies we've seen that dexmedetomidine at rates greater than 0.8 microgram per kilogram per hour puts patients at higher risks for withdrawal. Now that we've established what IWS is and the risk factors for its prevalence in patients, let's now dive into the management of IWS. When thinking about how to manage patients with IWS, there's really two main schools of thought, symptomatic management and receptor replacement strategies. The agents that I'll be discussing today may fall into one or both of these categories. Of note, it's important to recognize that there are adjunctive agents that we can use to help alleviate some of the symptoms that patients experience with withdrawal, such as anti agents for the diarrhea, anti-emetics for nausea and vomiting, and sleep supplementation agents for the insomnia. However, those are transient agents utilized for, to help with symptom management, and I'll be focusing on the agents listed on this slide today for the rest of the presentation. To start off, let's first dive into seeing how clonidine may be utilized for opioid withdrawal syndrome. To best understand the utility of clonidine in opioid withdrawal syndrome, it's best to understand the mechanism at which clonidine acts in this manifestation. When opioid agonists bind to the mute opioid receptor in an acute setting, they will be inhibiting the CAMP pathway leading to decreased norepinephrine release and the therapeutic effects of analgesia and sedation will prevail. With chronic use of opioids, that CAMP pathway will recover, leading to an increased norepinephrine release in that area, leading to increased dose requirements of the opioid in order to achieve the same therapeutic effect. In a withdrawal state, where opioids are titrated down or removed, that CAMP pathway signaling will be highly elevated, leading to excess norepinephrine release and the clinical manifestations of tachycardia, agitation, and other withdrawal symptoms that we'll see. Clonidine specifically acts at the locus coralis in the presynaptic alpha-2 adrenergic neurons to prevent that excess release of the norepinephrine, therefore attempting to alleviate some of the symptoms of opioid withdrawal. I emphasize some of the symptoms of opioid withdrawal because it's been proven that clonidine actually has differential effects in opioid withdrawal syndrome. Jasinski and colleagues in the 1980s have recognized there are certain anti-effective, anti-withdrawal effects with clonidine compared to pure mu opioids like morphine. What they've identified is that while clonidine is fantastic at relieving some of the autonomic symptoms associated with opioid withdrawal, such as reduction in heart rate, reduction in temperature, and reduction in blood pressure, it's not as great as a true opioid in reducing some of that subjective discomfort measures associated with withdrawal, like restlessness and insomnia. Keeping this in mind, I think it's well-established that clonidine does a great job of reducing the autonomic symptoms associated with opioid withdrawal. However, where the evidence really lacks is how that's utilized in the ICU setting. One of the only studies that looks at enteral clonidine use in the opioid withdrawal setting in ICU is a randomized controlled trial in 2015. In this study, ICU patients who were on mechanical ventilation for at least three days while on standardized sedation of fentanyl, midazolam, and propofol were randomized to receive adjunctive therapy with clonidine at 0.1 milligrams every eight hours or placebo. At the 24-hour mark, patients, if they were hemodynamically stable, were able to go up on their clonidine dose to 0.2 milligrams every eight hours. The primary outcome assessed in the study was a daily dose of the sedative agents specifically the fentanyl and the midazolam that were required to maintain a goal Ramsey score of three to four of note a goal Ramsey score of three to four is equivalent to our RAS score of about zero to negative one maintaining and targeting that light sedation at baseline patients in both cohorts had similar mean daily morphine and midazolam use requirements however it's important to recognize that patients in the clonidine arm had a higher history of drug misuse than patients in the placebo arm. This is significant as we've established that patients who have a history of drug misuse are likely at an increased incidence, are likely at an increased risk of withdrawal. That being said, however, the results were fairly surprising. To orient you to these graphs, Looking at the x-axis of the days that the patients were studied and the y-axis, looking at the mean daily changes in morphine-equivalent doses and midazolam-equivalent doses, what the study designers found was that patients in the clonidine group, even though they were predisposed to having withdrawal symptoms, actually required less amount of sedation, both with the utilization of morphine and midazolam, compared to our patients in the placebo group. Ultimately, this study provides us with the evidence that clonidine at 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams every eight hours may reduce opioid and benzodiazepine requirements and, of note, had not adversely affected hemodynamics in patients. The theoretical benefits of reducing opioid and benzodiazepine requirements are plethora. We could assume that with a reduction in opioid and benzodiazepine requirements with adjunctive clonidine use, we may be preventing withdrawal symptoms from occurring, and we may be facilitating mechanical ventilation extubation. However, these were outcomes that were not studied in this specific trial, which contributes to its limitations. To shift gears from talking about clonidine and the use of opioid withdrawal syndrome, I'll next dive into the utilization of clonidine as a receptor replacement strategy for dexmedetomidine withdrawal, a practice that we tend to see more um, commonly. A great example of a clonidine taper protocol had been outlined by Bott and colleagues in their 2020 observational prospective study. In their study, they had included adult ICU patients after being weaned off of dexmedetomidine after receiving an infusion for at least three days. Patients were either put in the clonidine taper protocol per team decision, or they received a standardized dexmedetomidine wean strategy just based on standard practices. The outcomes looked at in this study include duration to successful dexmedetomidine weaning or the incidence of at least two dexmedetomidine withdrawal symptoms. Dexmedetomidine withdrawal symptoms included incidence of agitation, delirium, hypertension, tachycardia, or withdrawal symptoms assessed using the Watt one tool. Of note, the study designers who were pharmacists were the ones who were prospectively assessing these patients and identifying the risks for withdrawal. Looking at the baseline characteristics, it's very evident that patients in both groups were extremely different. Patients in the clonidine taper arm utilized more antipsychotics and had higher daily RAS scores compared to patients in the dexmedetomidine group. Therefore, it's not surprising that when we look into the outcomes of this study, patients in the clonidine taper arm had higher average daily dexmedetomidine rate requirements compared to patients in the dexmedetomidine group. That being said, we can recognize that patients in the clonidine taper arm had higher DEX requirements and likely were predisposed to withdrawal. But as we can see in the outcomes, the incidence of withdrawal symptoms in these patients, there was no difference between those who had the clonidine taper group versus those who had the typical dexmedetomidine weaning. What's more significant in the outcomes, however, is looking at the time on dexmedetomidine after wean initiation. Patients who had received that clonidine taper protocol had a shorter time to dexmedetomidine weaning compared to patients who had the traditional standard dexmedetomidine wean. As a result, I think it's safe to say that patients in the clonidine group, while they had a higher predisposition to withdrawal, actually experienced a more rapid dexmedetomidine weaning and comparative rates of withdrawal compared to patients who had not received clonidine. In my case, I believe that this clonidine taper protocol utilized was safe and effective in this patient population and is a great tool to utilize in our ICU setting if we're considering using clonidine to help wean patients off of dexmedetomidine. Limitations to this study include selection bias as certain patients were preferred to be utilizing clonidine protocol versus other patients who were simply put on the dexmedetomidine group. Additionally, in assessing withdrawal symptoms in this study, the wat one tool was utilized which as we know has not been really validated in adult patients. Transitioning from the use of Clonidine in IWS, I'll now be discussing methadone's utilization in opioid withdrawal syndrome. Methadone acts not only as a symptom management strategy, but also as a receptor replacement strategy. To understand why, let's go back to our mechanism of opioid withdrawal. Methadone not only acts as an opioid agonist and decreases the CAMP elevation, but it also acts as an NMDA antagonist and a serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. By doing so, methadone tends to have greater alleviation of the antinociceptive effects and is able to allow for the better withdrawal symptom alleviation. While methadone use entirely has been well-studied in pediatric patients to help taper pediatric patients off of their IV infusions and reduce the incidence of withdrawal, it's not been well-studied in adult patients for the same purpose. The only study that looks at methadone's use for opioid withdrawal in this setting is by Wanzuita and colleagues in 2012. This randomized control trial had included icu adult patients on mechanical ventilation who were on ventilation and fentanyl infusion for at least five days these patients were randomized to receive either methadone at 10 milligrams orally every six hours or placebo both patients in both cohorts had a fentanyl infusion running at the time and had a fentanyl infusion reduction of 20 percent on day one of therapy however Patients in the methadone cohort had a discontinuation of their fentanyl infusion by day two of therapy, whereas patients in the placebo cohort had their fentanyl infusion reduced at 20% for the next five days. Outcomes looked at in this study include mechanical ventilation weaning time and the incidence of iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome, which was typically assessed utilizing the same symptoms that we recognized rather than an actual tool. Looking at the baseline characteristics of both cohorts, the baseline characteristics were fairly well matched. What I wanted to point out with the red boxes was that patients included in the study inherently had a higher risk of iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome at baseline. These patients were receiving fairly high doses of fentanyl infusion. When we look at their average weight and the initial dose, this rounds up to about 160 micrograms per hour of a fentanyl infusion, which is a fairly high rate. In addition, Patients in this study were on fentanyl for at least a median of 10 days. At least for 5 days, a median of 10 days. So this puts them at a very high risk for withdrawal syndrome. When looking at the primary outcome of this study, it seems as though the mechanical ventilation weaning time was lower in patients who had received the enteral methadone versus those who had simply gone through the fentanyl taper. However, I believe that this result is not clinically meaningful, as the inherent study design of the protocol had forced the fentanyl taper patients to be placed on that fentanyl drip for five days, therefore probably confounding the results. Our current sedation practices allow for daily sedation interruptions and might potentially show a different result if this study was conducted in this time period. However, I do think that this study provides its utility in looking at the incidence of opioid withdrawal within both cohorts. While the patients in the methadone cohort were discontinued off of their fentanyl within 24 hours abruptly, even when starting at that high dose of 160 micrograms per hour, they did not have a higher incidence of opioid withdrawal compared to that fentanyl group who had that slow, gradual tapering of their infusion. With all that in mind, I believe that with this study, we cannot conclude strong conclusions that methadone reduces mechanical ventilation weaning time, But I do believe that this study allows us to say that enteral methadone is a reasonable replacement for IV fentanyl during the mechanical ventilation period, and it does not increase the incidence of opioid withdrawal, even if we were to discontinue fentanyl in a shorter time period rather than doing a gradual wean. While the use of methadone for opioid withdrawal syndrome in adult ICU patients is not well studied and not done commonly in clinical practice, alternative agents that are Transition to enterally, such as opioids and benzodiazepines, are typically what we see most common, and I did want to touch on them for the purposes of this presentation. When considering making the transition to enteral agents, specifically looking at opioids, it's important to keep various factors in mind. Not only are we utilizing an equianalgesic table to ensure that we're converting between opioids appropriately, but it's also important to consider opioid cross tolerance. Suggestions for Opioid Cross Tolerance Convergence include reducing that dose to at least 25 to 50 percent. On top of that, it's important to recognize why we're transitioning people to these enteral agents. More often than not, we're not transitioning patients in order to give them that 100 percent of the equianalgesic dose. Rather, we're transitioning them to prevent the withdrawal symptoms from occurring as we dose titrate down on the IV agent. For that reason, it is recommended to provide an additional 25 to 75% reduction in the daily dose of the enteral agent when we're creating scheduling protocols and scheduling plans for our patients who are transitioning from IV to oral agents. The same kind of concepts go for benzodiazepine conversions. Recognizing the potency and the half-life is important in creating a starting dose for our patients when transitioning from IV to oral enteral benzodiazepine agents. Considerations for starting points have been included in this slide, but it's important to recognize that each patient will be different and there will be changes in the dosing and the interval likely for each patient as they respond differently. To summarize the management of IWS in patients, clonidine, methadone, and alternative enteral agents all have their unique use in the ICU setting for managing IWS. When looking at clonidine, specifically in the use of opioid withdrawal, I believe that it would best be utilized more as an adjunctive agent to help treat some of the adrenergic symptoms associated with opioid withdrawal. While clonidine may reduce some of the opioid requirements and maintain the same sedation score, I think that clonidine's use is going to be best to do reactively rather than proactively to help manage the treatment and temporize it while we're getting the patients off of their IV sedation. Clonidine's use for dexmedetomidine withdrawal, however, I personally believe can be used more as a proactive approach. When patients are on prolonged infusions of dexmedetomidine at higher rates, I think it's appropriate to start a clonidine prior to the dexmedetomidine weaning in order to facilitate faster wean for dexmedetomidine and prevent the symptoms of withdrawal if they were to occur. Reasonable starting points for clonidine in this setting include 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams orally every 2 to 4 days keeping in mind that when we are tapering patients off of the clonidine, to continue to taper them and in, increase the interval every day so that we are not causing clonidine withdrawal. When looking at methadone in the setting of opioid withdrawal syndrome, this is obviously something that has not been well studied and established in the adult literature. However, I believe that with this evidence that we have, it remains a viable option to help facilitate the transition from IV opioids to an enteral agent. Morphine has great theoretical benefit in the use of Opioid Withdrawal Syndrome. And I think that as long as we're thinking about whether our patient would be safe with initiation methadone therapy, it's an option that we could utilize at an initial dosing regimen of 5 to 10 milligrams orally every 6 to 8 hours. Considerations to make for patients include their baseline QTC interval and concomitant drugs that they might be using that may interact with the CYP3A4 system that may prolong and accumulate methadone in their body. Finally when looking at alternative enteral agents like oxycodone or lorazepam to transition off from IV agents It's important to remember to consider potency cross tolerability and half-life when we're converting these agents and creating dosing regimens With all this in mind, let's go back to our patient case as an update KH has failed his spontaneous breathing trial and was restarted on a sedation to maintain a RAS of 0 to negative 2 He is currently on 75% of his fentanyl drip at 75 micrograms per hour, midazlam at 2 milligrams per hour, and the dexmedetomidine at 0.9 micrograms per kilogram per hour. He is hypertensive and tachycardic with new onset diarrhea and mydriasis. This leads me to the last assessment question. Given what you currently know about KH, which of the following strategies would you recommend to the team to manage his withdrawal symptoms and facilitate extubation? A, clonidine at 0.2 milligrams every six hours, B, methadone 10 milligrams orally every eight hours, C, oxycodone 20 milligrams every four hours, D, lorazepam 2 milligrams every six hours, E, both clonidine and methadone, or F, both clonidine and oxycodone. All right, so we have answers across the board. So I will preface this by saying that this there is certainly no right answer to this question. This is going to be team preference our comfortability recommending this and very like considering a lot of patient specific factors when determining what the best strategy would be. First and foremost, I want to clarify that this patient likely seems to be experiencing more of an opioid withdrawal syndrome, given that he's experiencing the mydriasis and the diarrhea and had a significant decrease in his fentanyl dose. That being said, I don't think that the patient requires lorazepam at this time, so I would not suggest that agent. When looking at the use of clonidine for this agent, for this patient, I believe that there are a variety of reasons why we would want to recommend clonidine for him. He's still on his dexmedetomidine drip, running at 0.9 micrograms per kilogram per hour. So eventually we want to get him off of that drip and initiating clonidine preemptively in an effort to facilitate extubation and weaning off the dexmedetomidine drip might be a viable option. Clonidine will also help with some of those adrenergic symptoms he's experiencing with opioid withdrawal syndrome. So there are various reasons why we would want to use clonidine in this patient. When considering utilizing alternative agents like methadone and oxycodone, again, this is going to be largely based on patient-specific factors that we don't necessarily have in front of us right now. I believe that oxycodone is a safe option to include on top of clonidine for this patient given that we want to wean him off of his fentanyl and get him ready to get to the floor. When we think about methadone in this patient, it will be important to recognize what his heart disease history looks like, what his current QTC interval is, what other medications is he on that might be prolonging the accumulation of methadone in his body. 10 milligrams orally every eight hours is safe to start off with, but again, this is something that we're gonna have to consider with each patient before making a recommendation. So really, my answer goes either way, A or B, or A or C, depending on patient-specific factors. To wrap up our discussion today, I wanted to conclude by Discussing the best practices for us as we are navigating the unknowns of iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome First and foremost, it'll be imperative to optimize standard sedation practices to ensure that our patients are receiving the lowest amount of sedation possible to keep them safe While we're caring for ICU patients It's important to continuously identify risk factors for iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome by keeping a track of the peak daily dosing and the duration of sedation It's important to continue assessing the signs and symptoms of iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome as we're reaching these trigger points in their course of stay. Finally, it'll be imperative to consider the management strategies by utilizing clonidine, methadone, and alternative enteral agents to ensure that we're able to facilitate the smooth transition from IV agents to oral agents to the patient's disposition from the ICU. Overall, iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome still has a long way to go in us discovering how to best even define, assess, and treat it in our ICU patients.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.